Our God, we ask what we asked last week, that you would cause our love, our love for you, our love for those created in your image to abound more and more, Lord, in knowledge and all discernment so that we would approve what is excellent and be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Fill us with those fruits, God. Give us abounding love. May we honor and adore you and love people the way you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you care whether or not people are treated the way God designed for them to be treated to the way God designed for them to be treated when he made them in his image? Ultimately, this is what true social justice is all about, that all people because they bear the image of God are treated the way God intended, and that when they are not, proper restitution is made. Those are truly the principles of social justice. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily the goal of many social justice movements, nor the typical unbeliever's understanding of social justice. What many deem to be the right treatment of people is not what God decrees the right treatment of people to be. Therein lie the problem. Everyone seems to believe in the intrinsic dignity of people and that people should be loved and treated justly. But we often disagree over why people have intrinsic dignity and over what true love and justice are. The only hope of true social justice is in the truth and the true exercise of these concepts, the core ingredients of the social justice cake that I gave you last week, people, love, and justice. When these elements are misunderstood or misapplied, they cause greater damage than good. When they deviate from the truth of these concepts, social justice advocates, as well as Christians, unwittingly cause greater social injustices. What we need What we all need, both believer and unbeliever, is to truly understand these concepts. If true social justice cannot be achieved apart from a true understanding of people, love, and justice, then we must understand these concepts biblically. This is the primary goal of last week's and this week's messages, that you truly understand these concepts from a biblical perspective. That you grasp what they mean and why they are crucial to to this discussion. This is vital. Vital for several reasons. The first is so that you will be able to stand firm in the truth. We need to stand firm in the truth. That when biblical terms are lobbied in these cultural conversations, you will be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood. 
to discern what is right and also identify false or or foreign concepts that deviate from biblical truth. That's not all. It's also important so that you can live out these biblical concepts. Oh, who knew? Yeah, we're supposed to live them too. We want to be able to live love and justice and to be able to identify people in the image of God. How do we do that? By knowing what they are. We need to be able to practice what we preach, to do what we say we believe. And it's also important so that you will be able to lead others to the truth. We need to truly understand these biblical concepts and how they relate to true social justice so that we have the tools to engage with others about social justice issues to influence others through affirming their true notions as well as correcting their false ones. It's a both and. Both standing firm and going out. Both fortifying and engaging. Both truth and compassion. So here is my line of reasoning to make it easier for you all to follow along. Last week we started with the people aspect because people are the central object of social justice. We discovered that the one and only way any and all people have intrinsic dignity is because they are created in the image of God. That's the only way. We also learned that since it is the God of the Bible that endows people with dignity, it is the God of the Bible and him alone that determines how people ought to be treated. That is what these other two elements address, the treatment of people created in the image of God. It is these two elements, biblical love and biblical justice, that I'm going to talk about this morning. So buckle up, because there's a lot. To put biblical love and justice into their proper context, let's pick up where we left off last week, the creation of man and woman in the image of God. As we gaze into the garden, we would expect to see how human beings would fully display the image of God and how they would honor that image in one another by the way they treat each other. But we don't, do we? The first thing that we see is Adam and Eve, the parents of all humanity, sin. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. And for generations, the understanding of the Imago Dei passed out of all knowledge. Yes. I, the people who are laughing understand. The rest of you are like, oh, we'll talk about it later. Sin not only brought spiritual death for Adam and Eve and all of their posterities, but physical and relational death entered the world as well. Not only were all humans now going to be at enmity with God, but another result of the tragic fall was that they would be at enmity with each other. God says, and I will put enmity enmity between your offspring and hers. 
To the woman, he said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Enmity. When Adam and Eve sinned, the perfect image of God in humanity was marred. The Imago Dei was severely disfigured in them and all their offspring. It's not that the image of God was destroyed, but it was corrupted. At that moment, the design of human relationships was twisted, distorted, and perverted. Death, pain, and dysfunction entered the realm of human relationships. Instead of operating in harmony with the image of God, human beings would now seek their own interests first, even at the cost of others. They would seek to subvert, supplant, or sabotage others for their own benefit and pleasure. No longer was life valued, no longer was the image of God esteemed within people, but rather it was only honored insofar as it could be manipulated to fit one's own personal agenda and satisfy that individual's fleshly desires. To the degree that others would serve one's corrupt desires is the degree to which they would humanize or dehumanize others in order to satiate those desires. Oppression, abuse, cruelty, exploitation, manipulation, coercion, dominance, power, selfishness, quarreling, division, fighting, war, jealousy, covetousness, slander, gossip, hatred, inequality, prejudice, bigotry, racism, sexism, nationalism, and all other forms of tribalism, rape, murder, theft, lying, cheating, and adultery, or in a word, injustice was the result. Love and justice was twisted into selfishness and injustice. Does this mean that God's plan for how people are supposed to treat other people changed? No. What changed were people themselves and how they would treat one another, not how they were supposed to treat one another. Which begs the question, what then was it supposed to be like? Was there, is there a principle of basic human interaction that God gave us? I mean, is it the Ten Commandments or the other 600 plus Old Testament laws? Well, it wouldn't seem to be because those laws are addressing fallen human actions. Many of those laws say, don't do this and don't do that. And these laws were given long after the garden not before the fall. So, though the laws seem to govern all types of human interactions, is there a basic principle or principles of human interaction that is foundational to all of the laws about human interaction? Yes! Yes, there is. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he answered... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Hmm. So did you catch that last sentence? On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. All the human interactions that are talked about in Scripture. Love God with your all and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments or principles depend all of the rest of the law. Now this is profound, profound insight. So the rest of the law, the governing principles of justice are founded upon, dependent upon these two concepts. Love God with your all and love others as you love yourself. The first principle regulates mankind's relationship with God. The second, humanity's relationships with one another. Both are extremely relevant in reference to the image of God. These principles are how we realize the image of God most fully within us and toward others. It is in your notes. Let me say that again. These principles are how we realize the image of God most fully within us and toward others. So, since this message is about how people are to treat one another, let's take a look at that second commandment that deals with people. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, we need to ask some questions, don't we? Who is my neighbor? Sounds familiar. Someone else asked that question. And second of all, what does it mean to love them? How do we know what true love is? That's what Foreigner wondered. I want to know what love is. <laughs> I don't think they were asking that question. So who is your neighbor? When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He responded with a parable that indicated that all people are. He even went on to say that we are to love our enemies as well. This command to love your neighbor was not limited by location, nationality, ethnicity, gender, religion, economic status, age, or even animosity. This concept is prevalent throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus, it says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Who should we love as ourselves? The foreigner, the person of a different ethnicity or nationality or gender. They are to be loved as you love yourself. Why? Well, God tells us that too. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is not partial, and he takes no bribe. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And therefore you are to love those who are foreigners. It is he who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor. Why? Why? Why does God regard... Well, it says, for they are all the work of his hands. They all bear 
the Imago Dei. We are to love everybody created in the image of God. So, now all we need to do is to define love. Not surprisingly, many social justice movements utilize the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they do it abundantly. You've seen the signs? Everyone seems to agree that people should love their neighbors as themselves. But as I mentioned at the beginning, disagree over what love is. The definition of love is not something that can just be made up. Last week we saw that God is love and that love derives from the triune nature of God. Love is not a human invention. It's not some kind of blind sentiment, a vague ethereal concept or feeling. If it is, then loving your neighbor can mean drastically different things to different people. For some, it may mean sacrificing for their neighbors, and for others, it may mean sacrificing their neighbors. Do you have a preference? I'm sure their neighbors do and would rejoice at the idea of love being in truth rather than by opinion, preference, or feeling. We are having the Sathries for dinner this week. I am sure they take confidence in the fact that we believe in true biblical love and not some made-up preference. It might make all the difference between having them for dinner and having them for dinner. Yeah, be nervous. <laughs> to attempt to have love without truth, knowledge, or discernment is at best to have a benign, sappy, lifeless, and loveless sentimentality. At worst, it's to be oppressive, unjust, unrighteous, or even harmful. So what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? What is an accurate concept of love in the context of this passage? Well, Jesus gives us more insight where he phrases it in a different way at another place. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. <laughs> there is a lot to that statement. Your actions toward others should be the same as you desire them to act toward you. To treat others the way you would want to be treated by them if they were in your shoes. Or if you were in theirs. And what is that? What is that? It is for them to do what is best for you. What is in your long-term best interests, even if it is at great cost to them? That they would act on your behalf for your greatest lasting good. Isn't that what we want people to do for us? This seems to be the predominant characteristic of love in Scripture. So my best approximation then of love is this. Love is a commitment to the highest lasting good of its object, even if at great cost to oneself. 
Love is a commitment to the highest lasting good of its object, even if at great cost to oneself. Love seeks what is best for that person. It means treating another's life as more important, more significant than your own. It acts on their behalf for their lasting benefit, seeking their best interests. But this is still incomplete, isn't it? For we need to know what the highest lasting good of someone is, don't we? Everybody say, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well done. Whoever did that, that was good. Yeah. <clears throat> We're not left to guess what it is. What is our highest lasting good? Well, Jesus told us. He said the first and greatest commandment. There is nothing greater than to what? Love the Lord your God with your all. That is our highest lasting good. To love God with our all. The first and greatest commandment informs and constrains the second great commandment. If your highest lasting good is to love God with your all, then accordingly your neighbor's highest lasting good is what? That they love God with their all. This puts definitive objectives and guardrails on this commandment, doesn't it? Loving your neighbor isn't referring to indulging some shallow, momentary whim or fleshly desire of theirs. How often have we heard of parents capitulating to the every whim of their ch children and then the children despising them later on for not doing what was in their best interests? If the parent had truly loved their child, they would have denied their child the immediate gratification of their selfish wants and desires in order that they may develop greater character, better wants and desires. To then indulge someone's sinful cravings is not loving. It's kind of like saying, you know, I, I knew that you taking this drug was going to destroy your life but you really, really wanted it. True love is not trying to satisfy their fallen desires that are ultimately destructive to them. It is not affirming sinful thoughts, perspectives, or behaviors, even if that person thinks those destructive habits are their true good. Loving someone is caring for and serving them in such a way that they in turn Love God or know God more. Let me say that one again. Loving someone is caring for and serving them in such a way that they in turn love God or know God more. True love means accepting and treating someone as tremendously valuable because they bear the Imago Dei as valuable or more valuable than yourself, seeking their best, which often means not affirming everything that they do. It sometimes means pointing out sin and calling for repentance. And so, fulfilling the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, means always seeking to point them to and assist them in fulfilling the greatest commandment. 
loving God. So let's do a little bit of application in terms of social justice here. Remember, the degree to which something aligns with these biblical concepts of love and the Imago Dei is the degree to which we ought to agree with them. And the degree to which they deviate from biblical truth is the degree to which we should question their claims and help lead their followers to the truth and to true love. So when an LGBT advocate invokes the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it often has many purposes, doesn't it? It's a cry to really be seen and not despised by others, as well as an appeal for acceptance of their lifestyle choices. Therefore, it's a mixed bag. When people assert that people who are transgender, homosexual, or same-sex attracted ought to be treated as real people, and not as second-class subhuman beings, they're correct. That is correct. That is biblical. They, too, have been created in the image of God and are are just as valuable as a heterosexual. (gasps) Yes! Because they're created with the Imago Dei. We should treat them as Jesus treated everyone he encountered with compassion and love. And so we ought to agree with such a concept. And what an opportunity to explain to them why they have intrinsic dignity. But then, in the same breath, we must not condone sinful lifestyles or choices. They are also attempting to twist Scripture in order to get people to affirm their sinful choices. And so what do we do? We treat them as Jesus treated those he encountered with kindness, compassion, and gentleness, and yet firmly disagreeing and explaining to them why it is more loving to call them to repent and to turn to Christ than it is to affirm those sinful choices that destroy them. True love is a commitment to the highest lasting good of that individual. What is their highest lasting good? It's reconciliation with God, which occurs through repenting of their sin and turning to Christ. And so it is loving to point out their need for Christ, to present Christ to them, and to do it in a way that affirms their inherent dignity as well as your belief in their inherent dignity. With gentleness and respect, treating them like human beings and not like adversaries and not like objects, something to be achieved or attained. They're people. They are not the enemy. We don't get angry at them for being deceived. Does that make sense? You don't punish the captive because they are in captivity. Don't get agitated or avoid them because they have been poisoned by false notions. Address them, care for them, and invest in them. Not in a condemnatory way, but a loving way, the way Christ would have done. We are to interact with those trapped in sin the way Jesus interacted with those trapped in sin. 
with love and kindness, recognizing that they too bear the image of God and are of inestimable worth. Gently pointing out their need for Christ, just like your need for Christ. That they are no more of a sinner than you are. That you are as desperately in need of God's grace as they are. That we are all in the same boat. Heterosexual and homosexual. Male and female. Red and yellow. Black and white. We all need Christ. This understanding of love then gives us a view into what true justice would look like. At least one concept of justice. We'll talk about two this morning. Justice looks like someone loving others like they love themselves, doesn't it? If, if this were occurring, if people were loving each other as they love themselves, a direct result would be the absence of oppression, abuse, cruelty, exploitation, dominance, prejudice, murder, lying, cheating, and stealing. The absence of injustice. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. (laughs) So do you see how that works? How love and justice are intertwined? You love others by not stealing their stuff, don't you? And by not stealing them, bearing false witness against them, taking innocent life, whether intentionally or through negligence, committing adultery with or against them, and by not envying them, coveting their stuff, desiring all their stuff or their lifestyles, by not treating them wrongly or unjustly. This works. Love and justice, they come together. Wow. It doesn't take long to realize that if all people actually followed these commandments and the ideal of loving others as we do ourselves, that there would not be any injustice in society. Where there is the presence of true love, there is the presence of true justice. If someone does no wrong to their neighbor, a.k.a. loving them, then they will not commit unjust acts against them. Totally makes sense, doesn't it? If all people truly loved their neighbors, there would not be slavery, misogyny, nationalism, or racism. In other words, justice is treating people the way they're supposed to be treated. The way that God created them to be treated because they bear his image. Now, unfortunately, this is not the only way that justice is used in Scripture or in conversations about social justice. Because sometimes this first type of justice is not fulfilled. Another is wrong, and injustice does occur. God hates it. God hates it. God's care for all people and hatred of all injustice is a predominant theme throughout the Old Testament. 
through the prophet Isaiah, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Through Moses, he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, get this, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. See how that works? Widow and fatherless, widow and fatherless. In other words, when you do not treat others the way you you yourself want to be treated, but rather treat them unjustly or oppress them or misuse them, there will be a reckoning of the second type of justice. Justice then is also used in this sense, the sense of proper restitution or retribution when that first sense of justice has been violated. The sense of proper restitution or retribution when that first sense of justice has been violated. When an injustice has occurred, that appropriate compensation or punishment is meted out. So did God give a general overarching principle for the second type of justice that could be applied when injustice has occurred? Yes! It's amazing! Well, Lord, you thought everything! God gave another principle of justice when the ideal of loving your neighbor was violated and injustice occurred. Again, that's the problem. Isn't it? Isn't that the problem? The ideal, the first sense of justice, is not being fulfilled. And so a secondary, just and yet not ideal principle, the second sense of justice, comes to bear in such situations. This principle first appears right off the heels of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Huh. It's as if to say, but when these ideals, the Ten Commandments, are violated... These injustices are perpetrated. This is how to bring about justice in those instances. The principle is this. Take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is the central principle of restorative and retributive justice that God gives. And this principle applies to all people, male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, native and foreigner. It was established in order to dissuade the Israelites from perpetrating crimes against one another. In other words, so that they would fulfill that first sense of justice, loving their neighbors as themselves. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 19. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Why? Well, it's because you are to show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the ideal is for these evils not to happen. For the Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves. But when these evils do occur, Restitution for the crime is to be equal to the crime itself. An eye for an eye. 
a tooth for a tooth. Balanced scales. The restitution is equal to the crime. And this principle is tied directly to the image of God. You see, the first place this principle of justice was pronounced was long before Moses. Really? Long before the giving of the law. It was first provided hundreds of years before to all of humanity to be passed on to their descendants. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. (laughs) This image of God thing is pretty important, isn't it? No wonder I spent a whole sermon on it last week. Life for life. Blood for blood. Because humankind is made in the image of God. Therefore, all human beings bear this image and are due equal justice because of this. The principle calls for a justice that is proportionate to the mistreatment that was given. Regardless of people, irrespective of nationality, ethnicity, age, economic or social class. Because they're created imago dei. And therefore they have inherent dignity. And should be treated as such. But I once again remind you. That this is not the ideal. But an imperfect remedy. For when the ideal is not attained. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or balanced scales. Is truly just. It is, but it is just in proportion to an injustice that has already been committed. The ideal is that no injustice had been perpetrated in the first place. There, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not required because the initial eye was never harmed. Because there, a neighbor loves another as himself and does not wrong them. That is true social justice for everyone. So let's attempt to apply this to another instance of modern social justice. Many proponents of critical race theory would say that oppression is evil. To deliberately oppress someone for any cause, whether for physical traits or because of economic status, is unjust. Yes, it is. This is a biblical concept. God hates oppression and defends the oppressed. And so we can agree that oppression is wrong and can point out that this is only true because the concept is uniquely biblical. And yet, there's always that and yet, isn't there? And yet some CRT proponents claim that the way to defeat such oppression and racism is to oppress the oppressors based on their race rather than judging specific individuals who are guilty of acts of oppression. Huh. The answer is to oppress based upon race. Wasn't that the problem in the first place? Not 
They're judging based on race instead of the individual act. Eye for an eye is then corrupted, isn't it? For they are taking an eye from the one who took no eye. We must stand against such unbiblical ideas. Again, simply because their notions are false does not mean that they are the enemy or adversary. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. And you have been given the light. You are being given these tools so that you have confidence in interacting with them, having discussions with them. Remember, those are people you are interacting with, not issues. You are interacting with people made in the image of God. They are not issues. We discuss issues with people so that people will know God more. A quick aside, not that we have time, but hey, it's here. You will often hear objections to the Bible from social justice advocates because the Bible contains instances of misogyny, racism, slavery, nationalism, and all kinds of other unjust practices. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go into much detail, but I do want to give you a couple of thoughts regarding this. A couple meaning five. A handful, yes. Number one, I sure am glad the Bible does include injustices in its pages because if it didn't, boy, wouldn't it seem unrealistic and irrelevant to life? Number two, there is a difference between an act being described and it being endorsed. It's the old descriptive versus prescriptive principle that you've heard time and again from this pulpit. They are two very different things. Just because something is described does not mean that it is endorsed or commanded. There are some people in this very room who have never watched Lord of the Rings. Now, just because I've described this reality would by no means suggest that I am endorsing that behavior. Josh said that was pretty cheesy. Also, we must remember that there are multiple practices going on in the Old Testament that God hates and yet allows because of the hard-heartedness of people. You might remember when Jesus talked about divorce and that divorce was never the ideal, was it? God didn't want divorce. God hates divorce. And yet he allowed it. Why? Because of the hardness of the people's hearts. Number four, our definition of a word and the Bible's definition of the very same word may be very different. The Bible describes the practice of slavery, and yet it comes nowhere close to our modern idea of chattel slavery. By the way, the Bible actually condemns the idea of chattel slavery, of one human being stealing another human being, Exodus 21. Which leads to my final point. 
In the midst of it all, God continued to uphold the concept of proportionate justice for all people. An eye for an eye applied as much for slaves as it did for the free. For females as much as for males. For the foreigner as much as for the native. For the poor as much as for the rich. And further, the law always provided protections for people from excessive or unjust treatment. Especially the vulnerable. God's laws maintain justice and equal human dignity. That was your aside. You who are note takers, I am sorry. So I began with the fall and how the image of God in humanity has been marred through sin and how the ways we treat one another has been greatly distorted because of this. So what would it look like to truly fulfill these concepts, these elements, these commands, to fully realize the image of God within us and toward others? What would it look like to walk wholly in the Imago Dei and to treat others with the inherent dignity and worth with which God has vested them? It's a good question. It's because I wrote the question, but it was just still good. Well, to understand the ideal, we must look at the ideal, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the ideal in understanding what it means to live out being created in the image of God, as well as what it means to treat others in that image. You see, Jesus is the archetype, the exemplar of the Imago Dei. Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is called the second Adam. Yes, Jesus was truly God. So he was far more than we are, but he was never less. Jesus was truly human as well. And so he demonstrated what the image of God in humanity was supposed to be like. Hmm. All of those communicable attributes of God that we talked about last week that were given to Adam perfectly and yet marred through Adam's sin are displayed perfectly in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He shows humanity what humankind was supposed to be like and how we were supposed to treat one another, what it looks like to love God with our all and to love our neighbors as ourselves. He treated all people as divine image bearers, as fully human and loved by God in spite of their sin. All people. Jesus' disciples. They were fishermen and tax collectors. His followers, commoners, women and children, the recipients of his mercy, the outcasts, the poor, the unclean, the blind, deaf and mute. He healed the paralyzed slave of a centurion, an unclean hemorrhaging woman and the widow's deceased son. He touched the impure leper, laid hands on the woman with a decades-long disabling spirit, and took Jairus' daughter by the hand to raise her from the dead. Through him the blind received their sight, the lame walked, lepers were cleansed, and the deaf heard, the dead were raised up, and the poor had good news preached to them. 
He delivered the demon-possessed, proclaimed liberty to the captives, bound the wounds of the afflicted, and comforted the brokenhearted, irrespective of person. Jesus cried, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He ministered to the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf Capilean, the Roman centurion, the Samaritan adulteress, the Cyrene man, the Sanhedrin ruler, the multitudes of children, and he fed thousands of Jews and Gentiles. He hung out with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. And yet he never condoned their sin. He treated them as divine image bearers. He loved his neighbors as himself by calling them to repent of their sinful lifestyles and turning them to love him, to love God. After healing the man who had been, born, who had been an invalid for 38 years, he exhorted him to sin no more. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. He spoke frequently about the wages of sin to those he ministered to. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, he warned everyone, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He told person after person to repent of their sin and turn to God because that is love. Remember the definition of love. It is a commitment to the highest lasting good of its object. What is the highest lasting good for anyone and for everyone? Reconciliation with God. Being restored to God to enjoy Him forever is the highest lasting good of every human being who has ever lived. And Jesus, Jesus not only spoke of it, He did it at great cost to Himself. Jesus did what it took so that any and all people could be reconciled to God. The death of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love and justice. It's the ultimate expression of God's love and justice. God shows his love for us for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He made this salvation available to all without regard of any physical trait. He came and died for all who would believe in him, irrespective of person, past, politics, prosperity, or people group, to make a people for himself. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, 
than the exact representation, expression, image of his nature. We cannot genuinely understand the image of God in humanity without gazing upon Christ. Address and justice truly without reference to him. Grasp true love without gazing at his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. Many modern day social justice movements plead for everyone to treat people the way Jesus treated people. Indeed, if they really mean what they say, we should wholeheartedly agree. Not just Christians, but all people should treat all other people this way. If this occurred, then there would be no more injustice to be corrected. There would be no more oppression or prejudice. And yet in the very same breath, they would decry people for calling out sin. They want to be treated with love, and yet not that kind of love. Not a biblical love. Not the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. You can't have one without the other. Some critical race theorists would even go so far as to try to erase the gospel of Jesus Christ and establish a new gospel. To claim that the gospel of Jesus is a white European message created by Luther, Calvin, and other whites. The true gospel is really, according to them, social equity and reparations. And the only way for you to find salvation is through continual penance. That is, recognizing and repudiating your racist nature. Making reparations for the racist actions of past white people and then committing your life to fighting for social justice issues. Salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but by works of penance, often for sins you've never actually perpetrated. Obviously, such concepts are blatantly unbiblical and themselves must be repudiated. Boy, I'm having a hard time with that word. Repudiated, say that five times fast. Such arguments undermine any true concept of the image of God, of biblical love, true justice, and the gospel. We must stand firm on scriptural truth. We must turn them back to the principles of scripture and show them that without these biblical principles, they have no hope of any equal treatment or true justice. True biblical love. True love is biblical love. And true justice is biblical justice. If anyone desires true love and justice, if they desire true social justice, they must appeal to God and his word for it. And if they refuse to, then they are simply appealing to anyone's personal idea of love and justice. Ask the Sathries, that's bad. Appealing to people's personal ideas of love and justice is what was the cause of all injustice in the first place. One more example of 
holding up beliefs to the truth of these concepts. Yeah, you got it. You and I. Oh, you had to go there again. It's all well and good that we hold others accountable to biblical standards. This is going to sound familiar. But if we don't hold ourselves to those same standards, then we're worse than hypocrites. It's easy to gratify, to hold, uh, easy and gratifying to hold others to these standards, but often hard and uncomfortable to subject ourselves to the same principles. So, to what degree do your thoughts, emotions, beliefs, or behaviors align with or deviate from biblical love and justice for all people? Don't just dismiss that question. Examine yourselves, please. To what degree do your thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and behaviors align with or deviate from biblical love and biblical justice for all people? Do you cry out for justice when it comes to issues relevant to you? and yet dismiss others' appeals to justice when it inconveniences you, annoys you, or conflicts with some political ideology? Do you resent when others lump you into a group or ideology while you lump them into a group and ideology? Do you only love the neighbors whom you agree with? Do you seek the highest lasting good of those around you? or only some of those around you who you get along with? Do you seek out relationships with people you know that you have very different views from to be able to show them the love of Christ? When you interact with people who have very different views from you, do you treat them as Jesus would have treated them? Do you look on them with love and compassion and a desire for their highest lasting good? Or do you secretly avoid them, condemn them, despise them in your mind or in your heart or speak unkind words to them or about them on social media and on and on and on and on it goes. We must begin with examining ourselves, our hearts, our thoughts. We need to ask God to reveal anything that is within us that is violating these wonderful truths if we are to hope to have any kind of impact in communicating these truths to others. Next week, we will talk a lot more about that. What does biblical love for Christians mean? As Jesus goes even beyond this, doesn't he? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, what? Yeah. Yeah, next week we'll talk about how this applies to us as believers beyond 
these truths that we've discussed today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you that each and every person in this room, every person watching, every person in Colorado Springs and in the United States, rich and poor, regardless of ethnicity, shade of skin, shape or size, location, they are created in your image and that you have given clear instruction as to how people are to treat people. God, I pray that those who are unbelievers would still see these biblical ideals and begin to love their neighbor as themselves. That true justice, that first kind of justice would be done, would be done here in America and across the world, Lord. That there would be no oppression. God, that you would kill oppression where it is. That you would destroy prejudice. That you would destroy racism. That you would destroy classism. That people would love people. Let your justice rain down, O oh God. And for us, Lord, show us Show us where we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Transform our hearts so that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.